It's been a little while since we've been here for Thanksgiving. Still dealing with King Ahab. We begin in 1 Kings chapter 20 with verse 22. Afterwards, this is God's word eternally true, by the way. <laughs> Afterwards, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, Strengthen your position and see what must be done, because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, Their gods are the gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Do this, remove all the kings from their commands and replace them with other officers. You must also raise an army like the one you lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, so we can fight Israel on the plains. Then surely we will be stronger than they. He agreed with them and acted accordingly. The next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats while the Arameans covered the countryside. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, This is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands. And you will know that I am the Lord. For seven days they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day the battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted a 100,000 casualties on the Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them. And Ben-Hadad fled to the city and hid in an inner room. His, his officials said to him, Look, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth round our waists and ropes round our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. Wearing sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. The king answered, is he still alive? He is my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they said. Go and get him, the king said. When Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him come up into his chariot. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. You may set up your own market areas in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. Ahab said, On the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with him and let him go. By the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophets said to the, his companion, Strike me with your weapon. But the man refused. So the prophet said, Because you have not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. The prophet found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet went and stood by the road, waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went into the thick of battle, and someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, This is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. Here ends our reading. 
There's a response of thankfulness that's printed for you uh, in your bulletins. The word of the Lord. Thanks indeed. Let's pray. I love titling this sermon this morning. You see there, Kill the King. Um, That's what this is about. And and it was a a great uh, time uh, for me in in study with this passage. Uh, People wonder about this and what's what's going on you've got the a constant theme in first and second kings of the words of the prophets come true uh, so that's emphasized for us again as the the uh, prophet tells the, the man who wouldn't strike him you know first of all do what the prophet says <laughs> if the prophet says strike me strike him and if uh, the prophet says a bear will come and find you or a lion will come and find you guess what happens a lion and comes and finds him. This is a message to God's people. When God speaks, and that's what this is, that's what the word of God is. When God speaks, do it. Yes, God is gracious and merciful, but he gives us his word for our, for our own good. So why mess around? And why not just do what he says? So we see those themes coming through here. But we see very strongly here, as we see with a lot of First Kings and Second Kings, um, we see how these kings over God's people, like Ahab, fall short over and over again. And they don't provide for God's people what they need and what God desires to provide through them as they reign over God's people as king. But as we see this, as we see the failings of kings like Ahab, we get to see what Jesus accomplishes for us in distinction. And in contrast, um, so the good news for you, and if you like to fill out blanks in an outline, you're welcome to do that. If you want to just listen, that's fine too. The good news for us from this passage is this. The main point of this is that God delivers you. God delivers into your king's hands the king who wants to harm you. Now, those are a lot of words there. <laughs> the God, God delivers into your king's hands. God delivers into your king's hands the king who wants to harm you. Look at verse 28. There's a key phrase there that we probably saw 12 times this morning in all our readings. A key phrase there in verse 28, and it's this. Look there, 28, verse 28. I will deliver this vast army into your hands. Now, that's the big and central point here. I will deliver this vast army into your hands. That's what the prophet promises to Ahab, the king. So the background here, number one in your outlines, when God uses this expression, I will deliver into your hands, that's your blank, I will deliver into your hands, he means that he he will supernaturally act. This is sometimes through human means, like through an army, through Ahab's army. Sometimes it's without means. For those of you who are familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms, you know it talks in this, in this realm. How does God accomplish his decree? Well, usually, ordinarily, he uses means, like Ahab's army. But sometimes he goes without means or without people, and he kills how many people? Like 27,000 with a wall. They don't have to do anything. So God just accomplishes it. But when God says, I will deliver into your hands, he means that he will supernaturally act through means or or apart from means. He will supernaturally act and often to, next blank for you, completely destroy. And here's what we see with Joshua in chapter 10. Joshua is not like Ahab. And that was good news for the people. Joshua, as he led the people, he wasn't a king, but he led the people as a king. He was their appointed leader, ordained by Moses to lead the people until they would have a king. Um, But he he leads the people against these cities in Canaan. And those were the marching orders. uh, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 20, and other places talk about when someone's in the promised land and they're attacking my people. Here's how you deal with them. You completely destroy them. Don't leave someone living in Israel who is going to affect you to worship other gods. 
Because if you start living like them, if you start worshiping their gods, then I'm going to expel you from the land because this land is holy. We rightly call it the holy land. This land is set apart of all the places on earth. This is where I am worshipped, God says. Other places, I let them worship other gods. But here, here, I am worshipped and I alone. And so even among God's people, if someone is worshiping another God or convincing people, trying to persuade others to worship other gods in the promised land, they're to be stoned to death in the law of Moses because God will not put up with it in the promised land. Now, God also reveals to his people that when you're going into other lands that aren't the promised land, if, if the people come out and want to establish a treaty, you can do that, but not here. Not if people come in and attack you in your land and it's their desire to occupy and to live here. And so Joshua understands this and we'll talk uh, uh, later about just the, I mean, these are, these are people who are so wicked that they were wicked during Abraham's day. And in Genesis 15, God says, but I'm going to let their wickedness go up to the brim before I completely destroy them and wipe them off the earth. This is language of Noah. This is wickedness on the level of Noah. These are not nice people um, that are being destroyed in Canaan. These are not nice people, the, Aram, uh, the Aramans, who are being destroyed. These are people who are banes. Their existence is a bane on the earth, bringing harm. And, and we can, you know, they're, they're people who kill, their own, uh, who kill their own children in worship of their gods. They're people who exercise... Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, acts of prostitution to worship their gods. This is the kind of people that were in the promised land. This is the kind of people that the Aramans, uh, that the Aramans were. Uh, but Joshua takes care of them by the word of the Lord to completely destroy them. Completely destroy them. And God tells Joshua, I will put these, and, and we saw this through the Je Joshua 10 passage, but we see it all through Joshua. I will give these people into your hands. That's an expression that God says, I will fight for you. I will give them into your hands. You will win this battle. You will trample down their high places, is what Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 33, 29. Um, the Lord is with you. He saves you. You'll completely destroy them. You'll trample down their high places. And so Joshua does this. So this expression, I will deliver into your hands, is an expression often to completely destroy. And here are your blanks. A city, a city, it's fighting men, and it's king. These are kind of the three categories we see with this idea of completely destroying. And, and by the way, this term for completely destroying, it's the same terminology for a whole burnt offering. A whole burnt offering, you burn up the whole thing. Um, it was just completely given to the Lord. It was a, a gift of extravagance to the Lord. It wasn't like a fellowship offering in the Old Testament law where you ate most of it, um, that the, the worshiper actually ate most of the fellowship offering. Uh, but the whole burnt offering was just given up to the Lord. And it's the same language, to completely destroy. And so God's people were to, with nations like this that would influence them to worship other gods that came into the promised land, they were to completely destroy, to give these people up in their cities up to the Lord as a whole burnt offering, as an act of worship to the Lord above. To do less is to not worship the Lord. So it's to completely destroy a city, its fighting men, and its king. So Joshua 6, 2, this is used of Jericho. I will give this people into your hands. Um, Joshua 8, 1, it's used of the city Ai. I will give them, after, after they get through all the Achan stuff, you know, Achan's taken uh, uh, spoil from Jericho, and so they lose the first battle at Ai. But then once they take care of Achan, they, uh, they go back, and the Lord assures Joshua, okay, go back to Ai, because I've, compl I've given them into your hands. That's Joshua uh, 8, 1. Um, Joshua 10, 8, uh, we see that this coalition of Canaanite cities is basically what you saw, those five kings, they represent five big areas of the southern half of the promised land when Joshua is conquering. So these five kings of the southern half of the promised land say, uh-oh, Gibeon just established, Gibeon was a land in Benjamin right in the middle. 
been, uh, they just established, they tricked Israel and established a treaty with Israel. Uh, and, and they said, and Gibeon's a big city. It's a major city. If Gibeon's scared, we should be scared too. So they all join together and they come against Joshua, seeking to do harm to God's people. And so we, we see in 10.8, this coalition is told to, uh, they line up. God says, completely destroy them. I have given them into your hand. And so in, in verses 16 through 26 of Joshua 10 that we read, these five kings are destroyed. Kind of an interesting con contrast, isn't it? Jesus is in a cave too. You know, a tomb like they buried people in in New Testament times. Above ground tomb. And, and there's a stone so he can't get out. Jesus gets out unto life, right? These kings get out under, under their death. But Joshua gets this. To completely destroy a nation is to conquer that city, its fighting men, and its king who's coming against you to harm God's people. So these five kings are destroyed. Verses 38 and 39, God puts to death the king of Makedah um, who fought against Israel. Verse 30 that Bob read for us, God puts to death the king of Libna. Um, verses 38 and 39, he puts to death the king of Debir. Um, we can think about David, 1 Samuel 17. What do you do with the man who defies the armies of the living God? And David doesn't just kill him. He's like Joshua, right, before him. He doesn't just kill Joshua with a, uh, or kill Goliath with a, a sling and a stone, but he tells him what he's going to do beforehand. He trash talks him. <laughs> Don't trash talk. But if the Lord's on your side, you know the Lord's going to do it. Then you can do that. David says, you know, God, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll put you to death. I'm going to cut off your head. That's what David says. And so David, you know, throws that, that stone and, and it hits in Goliath's head. And then he goes over to Goliath, stands on top of him, takes Goliath's own sword and cuts Goliath's head off and holds it up. Anyone who comes against the people of God, God's not real, real happy with. God doesn't put up with people coming against his people whom he loves. And so those who have faith in the Lord, they take care of the king, the leader. Goliath essentially acts, acts, acts as the king of the Philistines there, setting the terms of a treaty. Um, whoever wins this battle, the others will become our slaves. So, um, like Joshua before him, um, David does this. But think about how Joshua does this. He, he kills the king, and then he hangs the king, and then he takes the king down, and he piles stones over the king. So everybody from all these ages after Joshua will, will remember, this is what God does to those who come against his people. And so God's people could be encouraged with this because they would see this pile of these piles of stones all over the promised land. And they'd say, that's the king of Lachish right there under those stones. That's the king of Makeda over there. And neighboring nations, and this is what God says he's up to as well. He's letting neighboring nations know, you want this to happen to you? Well, come on in. <laughs> come on in and attack my people and I'll do this to you too. Here's a pile of stones. You know what's under that pile of stones? A king who thought he could harm my people. Uh-uh. That's not how my people live and survive as I'm their God. Okay. So the expression deliver into your hands in these passages and elsewhere here in Kings first First uh, Kings 20 was a command to completely destroy a nation who had gathered to harm God's people. It was a command to destroy, importantly, the king of such a nation who had led his people, who was responsible for coming at God's people. How do you deal with someone whose idea it is to come against the people of God? You completely destroy him. There, there was a... a some of you are old enough to know the old raid commercials and its redundancy. It kills bugs. You know how it kills bugs? Dead. <laughs> and I disagree with Jerry Seinfeld. You can overdry, but but is it, you know once something 
Once something's dead, it's dead. But this is dead, dead, dead is what God does and what Joshua does. You kill the king. You hang the king for everybody to see, to display him that he's dead. This is what happens to the one who comes against God's people. And then you throw him down to the ground and you pile up, pile up stones over him to give him this, here's a big word, ignominious burial. This is burial of shame. So that everybody will know this is what happened to king so-and-so. So Ben-Hadad was under this curse, the king of Aram in our passage here. He was under this curse. He was a king who came into the promised land and dare try to harm God's people. And so he should have been dealt with like this, like Joshua dealt with the kings that were in the promised land coming after God's people there. Like David dealt with the Philistines who came to harm God's people in the promised land as well. So A in your outline there, Ben-Hadad, H-A-D-A-D, Ben-Hadad of Aram, which is Syria today, was a king seeking to harm God's people. This is what we have from verses 1 through 29. And B, God promised Ahab he would deliver, he would deliver Ben-Hadad's vast, ar vast army into Ahab's hands. That's verse 28 that we looked at. God delivered into Ahab's hands Ben-Hadad, and he was delivering him to Ahab to, for, for death. So he, delivered, he delivers the army, and, and God's army faithfully goes after everybody. They get everybody they can, and a few escape, but they're not at fault for that. I mean, a few squeak out, but they pursue everybody as far as they can pursue them and kill all the, the army that's come against them. And then God delivers up Ben-Hadad, who's responsible for this, um, to Ahab um, for death. Um, so that Ben-Hadad might never come again to kill, harm, or steal from God's people. And so Ben-Hadad, being killed, would serve as a deterrent um, for anyone to come against Israel. You see this in the Law of Moses and, and Joshua. There were those two kings uh, that were east of the Jordan, Sihon and Og. And it's said, uh, and that's where the, the two and a half tribes live in their land, the land of the king of Sihon and, and Og. And God's people were going to leave those two kings alone. And those kings wouldn't let them pass and came out with armies against them. So God says, okay, very well, take these guys. And God delivers Sihon and Og into his hands. But what God says about them in Scripture is that the nations would know that I am with you. And that if you come against my people, this is what will happen to you as well. It's what Rahab says when the two spies come to her. We've heard what your God did to Pharaoh in Egypt. And we heard what you did, what your God did to Sihon and Og across the Jordan. And Ben-Hadad was to be another message like this, another deterrent to any nation who would come in to the promised land, into God's people, and try to harm them, steal from them, or oppress them. So chapter 20, um, chapter 20 is the account of the four times Ben-Hadad attacks God's people in the promised land. If it, it, it was hard for me to remember, so I, it's probably hard for you to remember, too, before Thanksgiving. Uh, this is the fourth time Ben-Hadad comes against God's people. Okay, Comes against them first and says, give me all your good stuff. Then he comes back and he says, okay, all your good stuff is not enough. I'm going to search your houses, the houses of all your wealthy people, and I'm going to take whatever I want, whatever you, whatever you value. And remember Ahab responds to the prophet and says, yeah, no, no, you're not going to do that. And then the third, the third time, Ben-Hadad says, okay, very well, I'll bring my army and we'll attack you. And this is, and so God gives uh, Ben-Hadad into Ahab's hands. And that's where we started this morning with the prophet saying right after that battle where Ben-Hadad had come against God's people for the third time. After that battle, the prophet says, now prepare, Ahab, he's going to come again for you in the spring. So this is the fourth time 
Ben-Hadad has come against God's people, invaded the promised land to steal their stuff and kill them as a people. It's like, you know, Mike Myers, not the comedian, but the star of the, the character in Halloween. You know, that's the bad guy in Halloween, Mike Myers. That's the character's name. Isn't that funny? That movie was around before when Mike Myers was like eight years old, um, the, the comedian. But Mike Myers, you know, you, you, you kill him. It's like those Geico commercials, right? You kill Mike Myers or you think he's killed and then you walk away and then that music starts, da, 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 you know, that piano beat and then Mike Myers is sitting there and, you know, like this and then all of a sudden it's like, and you're like, ah, right? But, you know, it's like, why, why, why don't you, you know, or it's, it's, it's like Anakin at the end of uh, Revenge of the Sith. Obi-Wan, go over and make sure he's dead. Just, just check. I know he doesn't have legs, but just check. Jeez. You know, but these, these horror movies, right? They don't check. Well, he's not moving. I guess he's dead. Let's go into this next room over and have some popcorn and turn on the stereo really loud so we're completely unaware. <laughs> you make sure a king who's attacking you, who wants to harm the people who you're responsible to, you want to make sure that king is dead. Ben Haddad's like Mike Myers, or he's like Anakin. It's like, you just check, make sure he's dead. You know, that's what Joshua did. Kill him, hang him, and throw rocks over him just in case. <laughs> uh, but see, God declares the good news. He's not like Ahab, who says, oh, he's my brother. I'll let you live. You're probably going to be do nice things to us in the future, right? I mean, that's your track record. Yeah, just go on home. That's fine. God's not like that when someone messes with you. God declares the good news. I will protect. That's your blank. I will protect my people from any king who seeks to harm them. I will. The good news is I will protect my people from any king who seeks to harm them. Here in this passage, we get a glimpse of why God's people wound up not thriving in the promised land. Yet another king, Ahab, who won't put to death any king who comes into the promised land to harm God's people. Over and over, what we see in 1 Kings, both in Israel in the north and in Judah in the south, is we see kings who get scared, who let these kings live, who establish treaties with these kings, who pay these kings money, who steal from the temple treasury and give these kings money so that these kings will leave them alone instead of just simply putting these kings to death and letting the world know this is how our God fights for us if you come against us. Don't you dare. So, 1 Kings was written to a group of people in exile who had king after king who didn't extinguish the kings who had come to harm them. This last king being Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So Hezekiah dealt with envoys from Babylon in his day. And what's Hezekiah do? He shows them all the treasure in the temple. And Isaiah comes back to Hezekiah and says, bad move, Hezekiah. Don't get friendly with these people. They're going to come. They're going to clean house. And all this treasure you, show, you showed them, they're going to take it from you. So God's people wind up in exile because they have kings who won't deal with kings who have come to harm them, God's people. Now for you, number two. The king who wants to harm, the king who wants to harm you forever is Satan. The king who wants to harm you forever is Satan. That's the imagery with scripture. These kings that came against God's people in the promised land, they were real historical people, but they were shadows of what Satan is to God's people. Um, so A, Satan is a king. You may not realize that. You see this in Ephesians 2. It says he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The ruler, the king. Um, or John 12, this is what Jesus calls Satan in John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11. He calls Satan the prince of this world. Now, if you think for a second, well, prince isn't exactly a king, realize 
Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Realize that the King of Israel throughout Isaiah and Ezekiel is called the Prince. The Son of David is called the Prince. Okay, so when Jesus calls Satan the Prince of this world, he means he's the King of it. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1.13, he's the King of the Dominion of Darkness. And we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. So B, Satan is a king who invades to harm you for eternity. Revelation 12, 10 says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Satan accuses believers of the sins they've committed to try to somehow affect final judgment. But Satan's a king who invades to harm you for eternity. And see, he attempts to send you and people eternally into the lake of fire. He wants them to be sent eternally into the lake of fire to receive condemn the condemnation they deserve. That's what Satan wanted for you. He wanted to, for you to wind up at final judgment before the Lord without Jesus and for him to be able to accuse you correctly of all the sins you had committed so that you would be sent to the lake of fire forever to receive the condemnation you deserve for the sins you have and will commit. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.12, all will be condemned who have not believed the truth. Those who don't believe the truth, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. All who have not believed the truth will be condemned. Jesus himself puts it this way, John 3.18, right after John 3.16, John 3.18. But whoever does not believe in the Son stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So Ben-Hadad is a figure for us of Satan coming into the promised land, trying to keep God's elect, God's people from having peace, prosperity in the promised land of the church of heaven, of the new heavens and new earth. So three, how do we avoid this? Uh, you need a king. You need a king. That's your blank. You need a king faithful to crush the king, Satan, who seeks your harm. You don't need a king like Ahab, that's for sure. Notice what's said here in verse 42. Look at verse 42. The prophet says to the king Ahab, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man, Ben-Hadad. You've set free a man that I had determined should die, right? Completely destroy I've delivered them into your hands, the fighting men, the city, and the king. I determined that you, you should completely destroy him. I told you I gave him into your hands. You've set a free a man I determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life. But listen to this. The people are attached to the king. And your people for his people. The people under Ahab are going to suffer because of Ahab's unfaithfulness, because Ahab wouldn't put to death this king who had come to harm them. And so Ben-Hadad and his assistant and his descendants would continue to harm God's people in the future. So you need a king faithful to crush the king, Satan, who seeks your harm. So here's good news for you. Next line, your salvation from harm, from the harm of eternal death, your salvation from the harm of eternal death is not your job. You can write in there, my. That's not your job, but the king's. It's the king's job to save you from eternal death. Throughout biblical history, it's always been the job of God's chosen king to fight any king who would enter to bring harm to God's people. This is, you know, so David gets anointed by Samuel as king in 1 Samuel 16. 
And in 1 Samuel 17, the very next chapter, what's the king do? He slays Goliath, the one who comes to harm God's people and to enslave them. What's David do when finally Saul dies? And even before Saul dies, what's David doing? He's putting to death all who come to harm God's people, undefeated. This is the kind of king we need. So, A, just a review for you, some interesting stuff. See how big this theme is in Scripture. In the Garden of Eden, it was Adam's job. Number one, Adam was a king. He was given rulership. Rule over the earth. Have dominion. This is the language of kingship. Adam was king over all the earth. Have dominion over the animals, over the plants, over everything. Adam was a king given rulership over the garden and the earth. This is the language we see for Adam in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Number two, Satan was in the garden as, guess what? An invading king. Satan invades the garden. To do Adam good? No, he's an invading king who comes to do God's people, seeking to do all God's people harm. To get Adam to fall, to get Adam to disobey, so that death would come to all to Adam and all his descendants. Three, tragically, Adam didn't crush the serpent. That was his job, to slay the serpent. Tragically, Adam didn't crush the serpent. So it was promised then in Genesis 3.15 that someone else would come. A faithful descendant of Adam would come and crush Satan's head. But Adam doesn't crush the serpent, but agreed with him. Oh, this fruit probably is good. You're my brother. Thanks. Let's trade. Like Ahab, right? You see how the same kind of thing is going on? We're good, right? You and I? Yeah, thanks for this fruit. It's probably some advantage to me. I agree with you. And he eats it. And so he agrees with them and all his descendants, all his people, all Adam's people, the, king, the, the citizens of Adam, sons of Adam, those who have Adam as their head, right? To use the language of Paul. Those who are under the first Adam experience death. Death, that's your blank. That's what Bob read for us in Romans 5.12. Death came to the world through one man. Death came to you because of Adam. Because he was a king who was to be faithful and take from the tree of life and eat it and live forever so that you and I would too. And he doesn't. He's not a faithful king. B. In Israel, so in the garden, the, the king to slay the serpent, the invading king who came to harm God's people was Adam. That was the king who was supposed to take care of that and slay the, to kill the king. B, in Israel, it was Ahab's job. Or any king who was over God's people in Israel. It was Ahab's job as king to crush Ben-Hadad. So verse 32, God says, I've given him into your hands. Verse 39, don't let him escape. Verse 42, you set a man free, I had determined to die. And to paraphrase verse 42, you, let die, you will die for letting him go, and your people will die for letting his people live. So number one there, B1, for you bananas and pajamas fans. Ahab, Ahab didn't crush Ben-Hadad, who came into the new Garden of Eden, which is the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the, that's the language, that's the imagery of the promised land. It's the new Garden of Eden that you enter into, a land that has uh, uh, trees you didn't plant, fields you didn't plant, wells you didn't dig, like all those rivers in the Garden of Eden. A land of peace. Ahab didn't crush Ben-Hadad who came into the new Garden of Eden of the Promised Land as an invading king to do God's people harm. Uh, Moses calls, or God calls the land as he's speaking to Moses in Exodus 3.8, a, 
a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Ahab was to put Ben-Hadad to death as Adam was to put the serpent to death. Number two, instead, Ahab made friends with him. Ahab made friends with him, saw him as a brother, and made a treaty, made a treaty with him. Deuteronomy 7.2, which gave the, the um, battle orders for God's people, it said, if a king is in your land, if he's in the promised land, no treaties, no treaties. But Ahab makes a treaty with him. Three, three. As a result of Ahab's unfaithfulness to crush the king of harm, Death, that's your blank, death would come to Ahab and his people. Uh, Verse 42, you'll die for letting him go. Your people will die for letting his people live. Now see. So in the Garden of Eden, it was Adam's job to kill the king who would harm God's people. In B, in Israel, it was the king's job here, Ahab's job to kill the king that would harm God's people. One, two, three, four, and more times. And then see, on earth today, on earth today, for all people until Christ's return, on earth today, for all people until Christ's return, it is Jesus' job. He's the king. It's his job. So John 10, 10, the thief, think Ben-Hadad, think the serpent, the thief comes only to kill and destroy I have come that they may have life and might have it to the full. This is the kind of king we need. Not a king who lets the thief come in. Ben-Hadad literally was a a thief. I'm going to come into your houses and take your stuff. Jesus says, I come not as a thief. The thief comes only to kill and destroy. John 10, 10. I have come that they might have life and might have it to the full. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what David does against Goliath. He puts his own life out there for the many. Luke 19, 10, uh, with Zacchaeus, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So in contrast, here's the good news, number four. Here's the good news, number four. Jesus is a faithful king who crushes the king who invaded to harm you, Satan. Jesus is a faithful king who crushes the king who invaded to harm you, Satan. So A, there. Satan held power, held the power of eternal death over you. Satan held the power of eternal death over you and all people. Uh, This is what Hebrews 2.14 says. It tells, tells us that Satan holds the power of death. The devil holds the power of death. Just as Ben-Hadad held the power of death against God's people in his hand with his vast army spilling out over all the countryside, making God's army look like two little flocks of goats in the middle of them. But it's not up to you to overcome death. It's the job of whoever's your king And Jesus is this king. So number one. So Jesus lived as a man to face Satan and the death that comes to all men. Hebrews 2.14. Jesus comes and he takes on flesh. He's made like we are. Number two. In his resurrection, in his resurrection as a man, Jesus conquered the king of harm, Satan, and the human death he had in store for you. Like Ben-Hadad had in store for God's people death, Satan had in store for you eternal death. But Jesus comes, lives among his people, dies a human death, and is resurrected unto life so that you might be resurrected as well. In other words, be In other words, Jesus comes to earth, gets anointed as king, and that's with John the Baptist. John the Baptist anoints him as king. God the Father calls him his son, which was language of being king. In other words, Jesus comes to earth, gets anointed as king, and doesn't call Satan brother. Nor make a treaty with him. 
or cut a deal with them. Full justice against Satan. Full fighting against Satan. Instead, number one, instead, this is the language of Colossians 2.15 and Hebrews 2.14 and 15 and Revelation 1.8 and 26. Instead, Jesus comes and he disarms him. That's your first blank. So Jesus doesn't call Satan brother. He doesn't make a treaty with him. Instead, he disarms him. He crushes him. He makes a spectacle of him. I'll slow down. He disarms him. He crushes him. He makes a spectacle of him. Okay, now think, Joshua, what's he do to the kings who want to harm God's people? He, he disarms them. He crushes them. And he makes a spectacle of them. He hangs them for everybody to see. And then he throws them down to the ground and heaps rocks over them. Makes a spectacle of them. Next one, he triumphs over him, triumphs over him. And he rips, he rips the keys of death from him. So that death cannot harm you. Genesis 3.15, speaking of what Jesus would ultimately do, he will crush Satan's head. This is like 1 Samuel 17. David taking on Goliath, killing him before all the people, standing over him before all the people, cutting off his head before all the people and standing there with Goliath's head in one hand and Goliath's sword in the other. This is what happens to those who seek to harm God's people. And that's what Jesus says about you and me. Jesus ain't no wimp, right? Jesus isn't soft. Jesus is a mighty warrior who has furious anger against those who come against his people, against those he bought with his blood. If you're a parent and you've ever seen your kid bullied or pushed around, you know, well, if you're like me, you know what you want to do. You're going to run that kid over and slam the back of his head into the dirt. And you have to control yourself not to do that. Right? That's my kid. You don't mess with my kid. It's like Arnold, the Terminator, with that, you know, what's his name? John O'Connor. What, what's his name? The boy that he comes to protect. It's like, you don't mess with him. And that's the way Jesus is for you. That's why, that's why God had kings for his people in Old Testament times. That's why he, he brought David instead of Saul. Saul, Saul. Saul hung out at the back of the army. Didn't even know the battle was going on. David goes out in front and fights them. And that's what Jesus has done for you. He went out in front and he fought death before you even got there. So that death would be a conquered enemy for you. And so that Satan would be a conquered enemy for you for you and so that at final judgment we have the words of paul right who is it who condemns it's jesus who condemns and jesus has chosen to save you and so you're safe colossians 2 15 great great verse listen to this and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus too, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We don't fear death anymore. We don't have fear of death. For us, death is life. Revelation 1.18. Jesus says to John, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. I've resurrected. I've defeated death. I hold the keys, not Satan. You're safe. 
I'm the king who killed the king who came to harm you. And I ripped the keys of death and Hades from him. Revelation 26, 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. That means when you die and your soul goes to heaven. That's the first resurrection. Blessed are those, blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death. That's being tossed into the lake and fire, a lake of fire, body and soul. The second death has no power over them. Because Satan defeated, Jesus defeated Satan and death for you. Rip the keys of death from Satan. So number two, number two. So with Jesus as your king, you don't have death, but life. John 5, 24, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And we don't have to do that. What Jesus says, all we have to do is believe. Hear Jesus' word and believe him who sent him. And we've crossed over from death to life. So summary, summary. Ben-Hadad, king, king of Aram, invaded Israel to do harm to God's people, to take their lives and take their stuff. Uh, well, God offered to finish off this enemy through King Ahab of Israel so that Israel's people would be safe from this threat. Ahab was unfaithful to do this. He did not follow through. Indeed, he did not take hold of the complete victory that God had given into his hands, even delivering the king of Aram right in front of him. Similarly, here's where your line picks up there. Though Satan in the garden invaded earth to seek for all people eternal death, eternal death and exile from the blessing presence of God. That's what Satan sought. He invaded the earth and he's prowling about like a roaring lion today, seeking people to devour so that they might experience eternal death and exile from the blessing presence of God. Jesus, that's your blank, Jesus, your king, came to earth to extinguish that threat for you, to extinguish that threat for you and for all who are in his kingdom for all who are in his kingdom by their faith in him. So the good news, because of Jesus, because he's your king, your eternity, your life forever is safe.